I am Planta on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Kennedy Stewart joins me again. The former Vancouver mayor has just published a new book, Decrim, How We Decriminalize Drugs in British Columbia in the Midst of uh, the Opioid Crisis, which uh, the provincial uh, government declared a public health emergency in 2016, a three-year trial period for decriminalizing the possession of uh, small amounts of hard drugs began in January 2023. In the book, we see what it's like to bring on policy change like this with insights as to how to work with the federal and provincial governments. I'll ask Kennedy about the various myths around when it comes to what's happening on the streets of Vancouver, like the misinformation that it's free drugs or that it would uh, reduce deaths. And as we uh, read in the book, though not directly, decriminalization uh, would make the lives of those who possess small amounts a little easier and uh, not have to endure a criminal record. And it was uh, largely the police that asked for this, as we read in the book. And uh, when I asked Mr. Stewart about his relationship with uh, the police chief, Adam Palmer, We'll uh, also discuss relations with former B.C. Premier John Horgan and others. I'll also ask Kennedy about the Vancouver he sees nearly a year since losing re-election to Ken Sim, a guy he beat in 2018. Kennedy Stewart was first on the program in 2017 when uh, the book he co-edited, Turning Parliament Inside Out, was published. He was then a member of Parliament. He has since returned to teaching at Simon Fraser University. This new book is from Harbour Publishing. We recorded this interview this past Friday. Please uh, welcome back to the Plant Online program the uh, 40th mayor of the city of Vancouver, Kennedy Stewart. Professor Stewart, good morning. Hi, how are you? Pretty good yourself. Good, thanks for having me. Um, Who is Susan Havelock? Susan Havelock is uh, a member of my family. She's my uh, brother-in-law, Ray Havelock's sister. and uh, she is the focus of this, uh, or a thread that runs through yeah. this, the Decrim book that I, that I wrote, because during my time as mayor, uh, she died of, of toxic drugs, uh, toxic drug poisoning in the, in the downtown east side after a long, lifelong struggle with, uh, with addiction. Well, would, would it be safe to say, Kennedy, that, that um, this was one of the reasons why uh, you moved on this policy, say? It, it is. I mean, I was always committed to harm reduction in, in general uh, and to do whatever I could. At, at that early on in my mandate as mayor, it was pretty clear. I mean, the prime minister said right to my face twice that he was never going to decriminalize drugs, and mm-hmm. John Horgan was not uh, also not uh, keen on that. So I had been working on safer supply uh, early on. Uh, decrim was always kind of in the back of my mind, but I didn't think there was any possibility of it happening uh, until um, the Prime Minister Trudeau uh, appointed uh, Patty Haydu as, as health minister, and that, that changed everything. It's a great scene in the book where, where she calls you, I guess, is it one, one night, late at night, sure. and says she's yeah. figured a way, or her people in, in the, the ministry, or the Department of uh, whatever they call it, Health, health Canada, yeah. uh, have figured out a way to do this. Mm-hmm. It's almost yeah, a dramatic yeah. moment for you, right? It was. I mean, uh, I had this little, uh, because I was a former parliamentarian, um, you have lifelong access to the House of Commons. So while I was mayor, uh, I, every time there was a cabinet shuffle, I would actually go to Ottawa and hang out in the hallways and try to meet the new ministers. So I was very successful with that strategy and happened to meet Patty Haydu on the day. I knew her from that when I served in the House of Commons, but mm-hmm. I met her in the hallway. And then we had talked a bit, and she, she'd come out to Vancouver to visit a bunch of 
different sites around the city. And then, yes, uh, later that year, phoned me kind of out of the blue when things were seemed bleak and offered this uh, ray of hope. I guess a lot of people think that, um, I mean, there are a lot of myths out there. So a lot of people think that decriminalization of drugs means free drugs. Um, uh, and then on the other side, people think that it, it was meant to save lives. In terms of, of um, uh, this policy uh, saving lives, I mean, w- was that really one of the goal? I mean, it's obviously a goal, but, I mean, was it one of the things that, that would happen as a result? Yeah, uh, so, yes, there is a huge, I did a little book talk last night, and there was huge confusion around the table, and mainly because we're in the age of misinformation about re- what decriminalization actually is. Mm-hmm. And it really just means that if you're caught with small amounts of drugs that are uh, currently legal under federal law, you're uh, not not arrested or prosecuted, and your drugs are not seized. And um, that's all it is. There's no free drugs involved. There, that is safer supply. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not legalization either. It's not legal to sell drugs. It's just you're not punishing the drug user. That is really what decriminalization does. So... Um, so uh, I'm sorry, I forgot the, the yeah, but, but see, but the, but that's the thing though. A lot of your critics will will think that, that that's not a good way to go about things. But as I read Decrim, your book, um, it's a humane way because it's a better way of life for people who need drugs, right, or who have to use. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this is everybody. So that, you know, there's all kinds of there's folks that are regular users every day. There's folks that I would call you know weekend warriors, and there's people that experiment and. You know, arresting people for using drugs, whatever category you're in, and putting them in jail, and and the fines actually, the uh, the, the sentences can be quite hefty. I think up to yeah. seven years in some cases, uh, and you see this in the U.S. all over the place. Like, how does that help anybody? Um, and just to go back, another uh, thing that was super important for all of this work was the support of the police. Mm. Uh, the National Association of Chiefs of Police wrote a report, actually as early as 2018, say, calling for the decriminalization of drugs because it's so hard on their officers. So the officers run into uh, you know a high school student that, or say uh, you know somebody in their early 20s that has. Uh, cocaine on them, and by law, they're supposed to be arrested and prosecuted to the full extent. And so what's been happening in Vancouver and other municipalities is the police just seize the drugs and let them go. But it's a huge conundrum for officers because, uh, say, they uh, seize the drugs and the person can't find new drugs and overdoses, or, or say they leave them with the drugs and they overdose, that there's some, of course, moral liability for the officer, but there's also perhaps potential legal liability. And so the police were saying, You've, the, the government has to decide what it wants to do here, and I, that's why I'm so glad we're, there, we're piloting this in British Columbia. And with the, I mean, officers stop me on the street all the time and say thanks, because yeah. this has clarified my role, and it's taken a huge amount of pressure off of, of, of me, and I know what I'm supposed to do now. You remind us in the book that, that um, it, it was this, this, this policy from, from the uh, chiefs of police in, in Canada, um, Adam Palmer in particular. Yeah. Um, he, he was very helpful to you in, in that regard, right? Yeah, I, I've learned a lot from Adam Palmer. I mean, I was the chair of the Vancouver Police Board and really had, didn't have much uh, knowledge of policing. And then over my four years, he's very uh, gracious in his... Uh, you know, kind of educating me, and uh, yeah, an essential, uh, and still to this day support not only decriminalization but safer supply, because when you're out there every day and you're 
you know, you're in charge of 1,300 police that are on the ground, you know when you can see reality through the rhetoric. And I think that's uh, – now, not all police are the same, but I, that's why I commend him for his leadership on this issue. I'll ask you about him in just a sec because the relationship obviously changes over the course of the four years. Um, so, so you get the federal government on board. Where was the provincial government in all of this? Uh, well, my feeling, and I express it through the book, that uh, really under the, the Horgan administration, they, Horgan did, just didn't see overdose deaths, toxic drug deaths, as his problem to solve. And so although they created a ministry of mental health and addictions, uh, there was never really any intention to do anything dramatic to curb this dramatic spike in, in drug-related deaths. Uh, that did, and so that is kind of the story of the book. It's like if the city of Vancouver, under my uh, leadership, hadn't applied to decriminalize drugs in the city of Vancouver, uh, the, the province never would have moved forward with this step. And I think that, um, you know, and I document that through the book. Of, yeah. Uh, and so, in the end, though, uh, when Health Canada under Patty Haydu told the province that they were, were going to decriminalize drugs in this, the city of Vancouver, it really shocked the province into uh, taking this next step. And I'm very glad they did. They have way more resources than a city, so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad they've done this. And I know Dr. Bonnie Henry and others have been directly involved in this very important uh, uh, step forward. And now we'll see if it works. Yeah, you remind us in the book that it was Dr. Bonnie Henry who called for the, the mm-hmm. decriminalization early on. This is this is 2019, even before a lot of us knew who she was, um, right. thanks to the pandemic. Um, uh, and um, yet she confirms in, in a, a recent interview that um, her call was largely ignored by the provincial government of the day. Yeah, actually strongly rebuffed by uh, by then Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth. So, and she said, and I've talked to her on other occasions, like she's totally surprised of the reversal and that's again because of the cooperation between uh, myself and and Patty Haydu to, to get this done at the, you know to get an application in and being fully considered by the federal government as a follower of politics I found it interesting when you write about the relationship with John Horgan and in, in in this regard not just this regard but also during the pandemic was a lot of the, the the personal animosity that he had for you do you think that colored the relationship between say the city and the province I'll never know I have no idea why in the middle of a pandemic when the mayor of your largest city calls, you don't call them back. Like, I'll never know why that occurred. I mean, I realized there was some, we'd had some friction on earlier issues. But, mm-hmm. you know, the federal, just just to, I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, it was terrible for everybody. But essentially, municipalities were completely melting down. And federal ministers would call me every night to say, what can we do to help? You know, how can we get mass to your frontline responders how can we help with the 10,000 people with compromised immune systems in the downtown east side you know how how is your finances looking because they were mm-hmm. our revenue streams were collapsing but there was no communication from the province and, I, and i've talked to other mayors across the country uh and uh it, some of them faced the same situation but others didn't other other mayors were in constant contact with their premiers even if they had uh you know difficulties in the past, so that that to me was I've, I've never understood it, and I think David Eby has, has a very different approach uh, as premier. So I think that's going to be better for cities because at least you have some kind of dialogue. There is an episode earlier on. I guess you were still the MP, 
And this yeah. had to do with the pipeline, I guess, and, and an incident on the telephone with Horgan, where it yeah. tells you to, to fuck off. Yeah. Um, what um, what did you make of it as, at the time? I mean, had you had a, a, any sort of – I mean, you, you, you belonged to the same party. Did you have any relationship personally with him at that point, even before that point? Yeah, not, not a ton. I mean, uh, you know, a little bit of interaction at various functions and things, but uh-huh. then I, I was started to get to know the real him. Yeah. <laughs> so at least from my perspective, and, you know, um, I mean, it's unfortunate, as far as I could say, because I, I think if if uh, the cities and provinces work closely, that they can tackle all kinds of things, like climate change and housing, but if it's if it's a standoffish relationship, um, and I've uh, spoken on that in a whole bunch of places, and, and I really think, like, in these times, all three levels have to work together, and that means picking up the phone when people call and they're in trouble. Yeah. I mentioned Adam Palmer a moment ago, the chief of police here in Vancouver. You write in the book, and I was, I guess, surprised because of how the relationship devolved later on, that he was quite supportive on decriminalization. Where do you think it was that this relationship began to devolve? I suspect that it had to do, or it had to happen, was it around the time of the Maxwell Johnson arrest? Yeah, actually, my relationship with Adam Palmer is still strong. It, 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 that one with the executive of the police, that's never uh, deteriorated. It's with mm. the Vancouver Police Union. I see. Which, uh, which you know, uh, kind of, I think, in a troubling way, uh, came out and endorsed my opponent through the election. Like, that just has never happened in the city of Vancouver. And the sad thing, it was all about a small budget dispute and uh, my willingness to tackle systemic racism in all institutions. And I think that they just aren't ready to, to do that. Yeah. So that it's, so it's different. Um, you know, Adam Palmer is, the, is the, really the boss of the organization, but he has a union, uh, and the leadership is, I would say, and I, I, I would suspect they have, <laughs> the executive has trouble with the union as well. Yeah, but but you, when you write about the Maxwell Johnson uh, arrest mm-hmm. in the book, you uh, say that you really regret having issued a statement soon after, um, after being told by Chief Palmer that um, in any of that statement you blame the bank. Um, yeah. Was that in your role as a member of the police board, as a spokesperson, that that say, you were directed to make that statement? Yeah, that was pretty early into my mandate, and um, you know I was just getting my head around how to be mayor and how to be. Uh, board, uh, you know, police board chair, and at that point, uh, you know, I was the official spokesperson for the board, and so I think I went out. Like, I think I should have been a lot stronger, uh, and I've always felt guilty, like, you know, uh, and I think we've all failed uh, Maxwell Johnson and, and his um, granddaughter. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the the injustice that's been done to Indigenous people, I was perpetuating it, and so you know, by not taking a stronger stance about the organization of which I was chairing the board um, and, and for this uh, type of behavior that continues. So, you know, I've, I've apologized uh, personally, but I, I just think, and then, you know, later I was able to, I think, make some amends by publicly calling out uh, systemic racism and convincing the province to uh, strike an all-party committee to look into this. But as to date, there's been no action from this parliamentary committee. There's been no no reform and things continuing as they always have, which is that the law is unequally applied in this city and across the province based on race. 
and that uh, you know that violates the fundamentals of, of I think our Canadian um, you know the ideal of what we are. You write in the book about um, how we got to decriminalization, and, and um, I guess it's still a pilot project, is it not? Yeah, it's a three-year exemption, yeah. and actually, it's it follows the exact same legal route as the uh, Safe Consumption Site Insight did way back in 2003. Yeah. Is that the federal health minister issues an exemption uh, to the law for a specific geographic uh, area? In this case, it's British Columbia. And in Insight, it was a it was a building, and uh, then you'll have your health uh, care researchers, health teams research and report how it's going. Uh, so it could be, you know, the federal health minister could not renew the mm-hmm. uh, the extension. I don't think they can cancel it. But, and, and this happened with Insight, is that uh, the exemption was issued and then extended, and then when the Harper government came in, they tried to cancel it, mm-hmm. and then the Supreme Court eventually said, no, you can't do that. So I, I have a feeling that's why it was so important to get something going, because uh, if future governments try to cancel it, the courts will be involved. So when you when you do see um, the, the political horizon, if you will, with a, with a federal election a, a year or two, say, down the line, and, and you look at the polling numbers, um, how hopeful are you about this policy and whether it will continue? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, I served in the House for seven years uh, with Justin Trudeau and with Pierre Polyev, and so I know them both uh, pretty well. I've spoken to the Prime Minister more than to Polyev, but I... My one sense is like that, you know, Polyev is a consummate opposition politician. But when people start to look at him as a leader, uh, that's when the scrutiny really begins. So I think that'll happen over the next, you know, 18 months to 20, 18 to 24 months. And the other thing is, I've seen, I've seen uh, the prime minister come back for many tough situations. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's going to be a battle royale. Um, and we might very well end up in the same situation we're at right now, despite what the polling uh, says. Uh, you know. Um, so anyway, uh, what I'm what I'm hopeful about is whatever government's in place is that because it, decriminalization's on the ground and it's and it, it's an application by a provincial government mm-hmm. uh, that the courts, uh, if if the federal government tries to cancel it. Then um, you know the courts uh, will kind of settle this. Whose jurisdiction is this, and is this medical medically necessary? Does it save lives? That kind of thing. So, so I suspect there'll be rounds and rounds of that kind of debate. But mm-hmm. if you look at legalizing cannabis, for example, that I read about in the book, the conservatives were absolutely opposed to this. And then eventually, when it got into place, uh, they've dropped their opposition. So, you know, there is. Especially since the, essentially since the police are really the ones who are pleading for this kind of change. So, mm-hmm. so we'll see. So, I, again, I, I hope my book helps kind of clear, you know, define some things for people, explain how hard it is to get these types of changes, to 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 say how, like, decriminalization is not supplying free, yeah. um, you know, opioids to people. It is just. Not arrested. If you talk to somebody who's been arrested for a possession charge, and there's 250,000 people in Canada who who have charge, you know, records from cannabis mm-hmm. possession arrests. Like, I've talked to people since, you know, like, 
it affects their entire life. And it may just be you're out for a, a party one weekend and you got caught with cocaine or your friend had some and you, you get a criminal record for your entire life. You can never get into the U.S. with that kind of record. Like, So that's all it does. Yeah. And then it allows people, instead of being diverted into the criminal justice system, they can go get help. And that's and I agree with Polyev that we need much more investment in treatment. But treatment often involves substituting uh, a clean substance, you know, a substance that is not poisoned, mm-hmm. for uh, illicit street drugs. So that's that is in the treatment system. Um, so in, in a lot of ways, part of the conflict is rhetorical, you know, to score political points, but in the end, uh, as the death toll rises, we're going to have to do more because it's not subsiding. And decriminalization, I always say decriminalization, you know, if if 10 people have died from toxic drugs, uh, you know, now that we have decriminalization, maybe it, it will save one person out of that 10, you know, maybe only nine will die instead of 10. So that's not Despite all the work and all the battling and how tough it was, it still is not. It's really not going to have a massive impact on on this incredible catastrophe that's gripping our country, where 20 people are dying a day. You, you write in the book about your successor in the mayor's office and and this crueler Vancouver that you're seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't help but think that that a, a crueler Vancouver uh, will say. Uh, I don't know, oppose, say, decriminalization a lot more. And, and I, I kind of wonder what this current government at Cambian 12 uh, will contribute to whether decriminalization continues. I mean, if you've got any thought as to what they're thinking, perhaps? I, I mean, you know, you just, you just look at their actions. So, you know, in the middle of uh, a wave of toxic drug deaths, their, their choice was to close an overdose prevention site uh, here in Yaletown mm-hmm. in, in an area that has the second highest level of drug death. Uh, so, I mean, that, that speaks volumes. Now, luckily, they can't uh, touch decriminalization because it's a provincial exemption now. So they can't really, they could weigh in with letters and such, but they have no official power. So, but, you know, um, I kind of start the book by talking about the the email that came into my inbox every Monday as a mayor, where it would tell me, oh, seven people have died of overdoses this week, 12, 14, and there were 150 overdoses. And then you get other emails that tell you how the firefighters' suicide rate is up because they're saving. They're, they're so This is what they do every day, all day, and it's totally demoralizing. So I know those emails are making it into the the mayor's inbox. I know that he's being briefed on all this. I know council is. And it's whether they, what are they going to do? If they, if, and, and my suspicion at this point is nothing or reversing what the medical and professionals and the police are telling them to do. So that, that's a really bad place to be. But they can weigh in, as you said, with, with letters and the sort. I mean, and, and they help feed this rhetoric. Yeah. Um, th- that um, a, a lot of people who will find that the, they, they oppose the policy without even understanding what decriminalization is right. about. Um, yeah. So that's the danger, I, I suspect. That, that, it's a uh, danger in all our, all our politics these days. Yeah. It, is really, it is really extremely tough to... I mean, I, you know, I started as an academic and a policy prof where your job is to try to explain things as clearly as you can, but it gets 
drowned out by the by the noise. Um, you know, I was at a round table last night and people came to talk about the book and like one by one they would tell me how they know somebody that's died but they're so scared to ate you know and and ashamed in some ways of talking about it but also then getting and and scared of where we're probably going to have to go to save these lives but it's it's on all of us right like just it's on all of us to help to try to help and even if we have to do things that make us feel uh uncomfortable or take us out of our zones do, do you think um uh you could have done more in in last year's election to, to counter say the vancouver's dying narrative i i don't think so i mean i, I was already outspent two to one um you know there were outside folks that had formed organizations uh, polyev was targeting me uh ted cruz was attacked i mean it, it was weird really this kind of you know the the trucker convoy crew had kind of moved on from Ottawa, but uh, there were. If you look at the, you know, when my when my tweets are getting seven hundred and fifty thousand views, uh, and then you look at the comments, and it's just filled of hundreds of of awful things with uh, death threats and stuff. Like, uh, how does a how does a small municipal campaign kind of counter that? You you can't. So. And then, you know, people had all the trauma from and continue to do from COVID uh-huh. that we haven't dealt with either. So it's like, yeah, the city's different because we had a massive pandemic and it was probably the biggest shock to hit our country since World War II and maybe even greater than that in some cases because it was domestic. But, you know, my opponents capitalized on that and said I destroyed the city and they make, you know, so I don't know. <laughs> like, I think, I think, uh, it's it's really dangerous to our democracy, and it's probably it it probably changed the way we, you know, campaigns will go in the future here in the city. Like it really was just a tsunami of of negative, and and also there's the whole, you know, we we know that the foreign interference thing mm-hmm. is is true at the federal level. The Globe and Mail reported it happened here in Vancouver too. Uh, there is no investigation into it, which is very troubling. Um, but, you know, uh, the other thing is, you know, the, the city has forever, you know, except for a, a few exceptions, it's been kind of center, center right um, administrations that have run the place. And, you know, I'm not that. I'm a federal only Democrat. So, yeah. so there is there's a structural thing as well that was happening that, uh, you know, that I, I go into a bit in the book. As a political scientist and, and somebody who was mayor, is the system of, of say elections, even governance on the municipal level here in Vancouver, is that the way it should be? Could it be changed for the better, perhaps? Oh yeah, and, and I mean, if you think, you know, with our at-large system, for example, like it doesn't affect the mayoral races, but for councillors, you think if you're a councillor, instead of say campaigning in a, a constituency like you would at the federal or provincial level, you have to campaign citywide. I mean, it's just a joke. How can how can somebody running for park board campaign to 700,000 people? Like, you can't. Uh, and so it really it really um, is a real disservice to local people. And then, of course, your councils, you know, mayoralty has changed this time. I was the 40th white mayor in a row. And then, uh, but for council, it's dominated by white uh, white council members in a very, very multicultural city. 
So I mean, it's uh, you know the, the at-large court, the at-large uh, systems in the U.S. have been struck down hundreds of times in the U.S. as being you know disadvantaged uh, people of different backgrounds, and uh, and, I, and I'm looking at that now. So I've got I've retained a lawyer, and I'm looking at taking the system to court because I've tried to change it for 20 years, and I think going court's the only way it's going to happen. What about the top-down system that Toronto has adopted thanks to the Ford government? Is that is that the way that the city should be governed, maybe? Yeah, I mean, you know, all systems have their pros and cons. Um, you know, the strong, what you call a strong mayor system that Toronto has, uh, which I would say is a very, very strong mayoral system now. Like the mayor has a lot, a lot of power, kind of maybe even more than New York or other, other places. Mm-hmm. But uh, in times where... Like, if you think of dealing with this housing issue, uh, having to wrangle all kinds of counselors all the time to, to try to get policies through, especially when they're, they're deeply involved in partisan politics, is almost impossible. So uh, I think we tried something different, and I'm good friends with Olivia Chow, and we'll see how she's able to work in, in Toronto. And I was actually good friends with, with John Tory as well. So um, I think it's worth a try. Uh, but here... In Vancouver, it's it's probably the weakest mayor system you you have anywhere. Uh, you know the mayors. I don't even get you know I didn't even get to appoint officials. That's all done by councillors. So um, you know, I think you kind of get the results from the system that you have. And uh, although the mayor gets all the pressure, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's very little formal authority to do much. Um, you mentioned uh, a moment ago being outspent by your opponents two to one. Um, there was a story, you know, in recent uh, months about um, your campaign's uh, outstanding bills and the sort. Has that all mm-hmm. been sorted out? Yeah, I mean, the uh, you know, I'll say we're work. It's a work in progress. The the debts are being reduced. Like every every kind of uh, in a lot of cases, there are debts after elections. Like that's a pretty common thing, um, and especially when you're. On the progressive side of things, you know, you're not backed by by people, you know, the wealthiest people in society. So you have to raise your donations through small amounts, and and that's what I'm doing. So we're, you know, we're following all the elections BC regulations and law, and it's just going to take us a while to pay down these uh, these campaign debts. But that's uh, that's occurring. We have agreements with uh, with all the vendors that we uh, that we're paying back, and so it's slow but but steady. I keep wondering as I'm reading the book, Kennedy, about what you could have done better. And I, I'm sure you're thinking about that, obviously. I mean, you write about some of that in the book. Um, when you uh, dub the city or the, the direction that it's going towards is cruel Vancouver, mm-hmm. um, I mean, how much blame do you give yourself as to where we're, we are today? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I pretty well gave it everything I had. I mean, I had... Very fractured council. You know, if you think of the 2018 election, yeah. uh, the MPA uh, at that point they won five of ten council seats. Like they almost had a majority, and they were dead set against me uh, all the way through the four years. Like they were completely obstreperous, and I had to get I had to win say budget votes by cobbling together Greens One City and Cope. Uh, you know, and Jean Swanson's not an easy customer. Like she would walk into budget negotiations saying, "You know, I want to increase taxes by twenty percent," and and somehow I had to cobble all these folks together and get stuff passed. 
so I did. You know, I, I definitely didn't put property taxes up by 11%. Like, like I mean, uh, so I think the property tax increase record is okay. The, the approvals of, of housing was through the roof. Like, we broke records uh, on approving rental housing, which I'm, which I'm proud of. You know, there's a whole bunch of good things we've done there. But uh, but then you land the pandemic on top of it. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, this city was in serious financial trouble until I was able to work with John Tory and Nahid Nenshi and, and get a bailout from the Fed. Like, this wasn't a provincial bailout. This is the, fir- the first ever in history federal bailout of uh, municipalities. So, you know, I, I feel like I did everything I could. I mean, you know, it uh, didn't do me any good. I mean, I've I've been going through a year of dental surgery because I crack so many teeth from, from stress, mm-hmm. uh, you know, grinding my teeth at night. So, you know, it, it definitely wasn't easy. And uh, so I feel... I feel like I did everything I could, and, and like, just getting drugs decriminalized, uh, I say just, but but really that that gives us a chance to try something new, and I'm really, really proud of that. I yeah. mean, building on the work that has been going on for years to try to get it, now we're finally going to try. So, so you are proud of, of what resulted in, in, in the four years that you were there, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I my objective at the beginning was to, you know, through the election in 2018, the main campaign promises were to tackle uh, tackle the housing and the toxic drug crisis. And, you know, I struck an emergency uh, overdose task force right at the beginning. We, we got all kinds of programs in place. And although, you know, and there's only so much cities can do. We don't control health. We don't control even policing. It's not really, you know, although I chair the police board, mm-hmm. you can't, that's all up to the chief. It's not up to the board. So, and on housing, um, you know, again, the Broadway plan, you know, rezoning 500 square blocks is, you know, mostly with rental housing for future residents. I think that that was really tough. Like, that was really tough to get that through council. Very, very difficult. So, I, you know, I don't know what else I could have done. Um, I'm sure people have lots of suggestions, but uh, <laughs> there's the reality of, yeah. of how you get these things through. And, and that's part of what I wrote the book, is to show, like, how hard it is to do anything. And... You might, you know, don't believe the hype that you hear from all these politicians that say they're going to change the world in 15 minutes. It doesn't happen that way. Did you think the media played a, a part in, in, in how everything was framed against you, say? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 uh, I, I guess all politicians will say this, but, but I really feel like, um, you know, some, some folks were fair. I felt, I felt like the Vancouver Sun and, and, uh, and uh, Mike Howell at the, Placer Media was was all pretty good. Like they were straight up reporters, but then the propaganda that comes from online sur- sources, you know, they don't actually do any reporting. They take the reporting and they spin it, and that dominates the local news now. Like it's very hard to find factual news stories uh, in Vancouver. It's it's almost all opinion, and you know, you're uh, you're the guy who got arrested to stop a pipeline is all of a sudden in charge of a city. Like I, I was a great target for them, and especially when, um, you know, when, when you have the anti-vaxxers and the, and the truck convoy people loading in there. Uh, you know, I, I, I really feel bad for residents of the city because they're not actually getting the news. I mean, if you look at global TV, they, they run three car crashes at the beginning, but there's no, 
in-depth reporting as to what's going on, and that, that makes it really hard to have proper policy discussions with the public when all they get is rhetoric and, and spin. So how hopeful are you, then, for these next three years? I mean, you, you, you live in the city. You're, you're a Vancouverite. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a different party now in charge. Um, are, you, are you still hopeful? I, I just don't know what these folks are about. Like, I, I, I don't know what they want to accomplish. Like, they, they really kind of got through the election without making too many promises, other than hiring 100 cops, like, which, you know, they've done that. But mm-hmm. crime rate crime is up by 10%. Like, I, I don't see a commitment to change. I see more of a commitment to maintaining the city the way it is with super expensive housing and, you know, ignoring overdose deaths. Like, I don't... I haven't heard a speech or a, seen a statement that lays out clearly what the direction is for the city, and that, that's you know that's that's not going to help anything. So, yeah, I don't know. I I mean, I ran against Ken Sim twice, right? <laughs> I debated him many, many, many times, and I found him really void of ideas. Like, I don't I don't know why he wanted this job, um, and I don't see what he's doing. So, but anyway, that's for the public to, to figure out. That's, uh, but that's my reflection on it. Well, where do you think the opposition is? I mean, where, where do Vancouverites who may not be supportive of ABC or Ken say, where, 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 where do they turn? I don't see it. I don't know. Like, we, we get, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's hard to name the opposition councillors. Uh, there are no mayoral candidates. I mean, when I was, uh, you know, I was elected in 2018. By this time in 2019, I said I was going to run again. So at least you people had a place to, to you know, to know that. And and uh, but I don't. I think that really needs to happen here. I think somebody from the progressive side of things needs to step up and say, Yeah, I'm going to run in 2026 as mayor. And I don't, I don't see that. Yeah. It's a, a an engaging book and an important one because it, it uh, documents a lot of things that, that um, we've all forgotten. Uh, congratulations on, on writing it and continue good luck with it. I appreciate your time today, Kennedy. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a real uh, pleasure talking with you. The book is called Decrim, How We Decriminalize Drugs in British Columbia. It's from uh, Harbor Publishing. It's author Kennedy Stewart. Join me on the line from here in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plantin.